Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Porn? Why don't we just start with introducing yourself? Tell me a little bit about who are you and you know what what you do. My name is Dr. Kevin McNamee. I enjoy having people come in who are hurting and make them feel better as they leave. And I do that through a series of therapies such as acupuncture, chiropractic, rehabilitation, physical therapy, pain management. So, and thank you first of all for agreeing to meet with me. I've been fortunate enough to know you through the family for a number of years, and you actually used to do acupuncture on my brother, um, which is what brought to mind. Now, acupuncture is traditional Chinese medicine, correct? So the system of traditional Chinese medicine is very different from Western. What's the basic premise of traditional Chinese medicine? Great question. You have to remember that Asian medicine started some 3,000 to 5,000 years ago. The exact date and time is not known. Historic records weren't kept. But it potentially had evolved from India, which kept its system as Ayurvedic, moved into China, that developed Asian medicine, and then branched out into Korea, Japan, Vietnam, and so forth, and then throughout the world. So the system at the time, you have to remember what skills the practitioner had available to them were their hands, their eyes, sense of smell, hearing, taste, and so forth. So they had their five senses, their exam skill, their history skills, but they didn't have a lot of the technology that we have today. MRIs, CAT scans, x-rays, lab tests, those weren't available, but yet they worked with what they had, their senses, to get the patient to a sense of wellness. And that's where it evolved was looking at how the body moves through disease and through moving towards wellness, what changes occurred, and trying to make sense of that. And what evolved was a paradigm known as traditional Chinese or traditional Asian medicine, depending on how you want to uh, coin it. That's what evolved based on these historic practitioners looking at using the five senses, the disease process going from various stages of the disease condition. And they used their five senses, and they developed the system of Asian medicine. Okay. Now, is this at all similar to the European system of the four humors belief of disease? What's, what's the model of disease in traditional Chinese medicine? The model in Chinese medicine revolves around a balance, and that balance being yin and yang. What the original uh, developers of Asian medicine observed in nature as well as in human beings is that there must be a balance in order for the body to sustain itself. I'll give you an example. If you look at the daytime versus nighttime, you've got a 
dual opposite there, the yin-yang as they refer to it. So you always have some daylight, you have some nighttime. Different processes take place during that in nature and in our bodies. You have activity and you have rest, the dual opposites there. You have hot, you have cold, you have dry, you have damp. All those things come together in evaluating the patient in sickness and disease and wellness. So they try to create a balance between the two, and if you're in balance, your body has a better way of handling any disease process and maintaining wellness. So the balance is essential, and by doing that, the um, patient has a better chance of dealing with whatever life throws at them. How do you restore this balance if you're overbalanced in one way or another? First is the practitioner needs to evaluate what is out of balance with that patient. And they go through a series of diagnostic approaches, everything from history with the patient, asking a series of questions that any practitioner would do. Second was they look at key indicators, such as the uh, person's affect, the shen as they refer to it. You have the um, tongue as one of the diagnostic instruments that the tongue will change depending on what happens with the process. Uh, pulse diagnosis, palpation with their hands, uh, range of motion. All those things give the practitioner indication as to whether it fits into one scenario or another, and then that gives you a treatment approach. That treatment, the therapies that are available in traditional Chinese medicine historically have been acupuncture, which is the insertion of a very, very fine needle into the uh, body. Herbology, which uses natural therapies uh, that's found in nature that are ingested, and by ingesting those therapies, you wind up having the chemicals released in the body. And keep in mind that some 20 to 30 percent of the medications that are sold in the pharmaceutical industry today have some sort of herbal foundation. And in fact, that's a big scramble right now that the pharmaceuticals are trying to do is isolate the active ingredient, sell it to us at 10,000 what the uh, times the cost of making it if you were to do it on your own. Uh, breathing techniques, meditation, uh, tai chi, qigong, um, all those come together with soft tissue work, stretching, uh, uh, lifestyle changes. All those are part of Asian medicine. Now I'm going to back up for just a moment. You mentioned the tongue is one of the diagnostic tools. Usually that's one that Certainly in Western medicine, we tend to ignore. We look. If there's nothing in the back of the throat, we say, okay, mouth's all right. How is the tongue used in diagnosis in traditional Asian medicine? When I was going through my training in Asian medicine, it was the time when the AIDS virus was pretty much not a very treatable kind of condition as compared to what we have today. We have more options. And you would see the patients come in who are suffering from HIV, AIDS, situations. And you would see that tongue change over time as a very dramatic example of how the tongue does reflect the health of the body. So from a Western type MD allopathic approach, you would look at the tongue, okay, it looks fine, I don't see anything major on it. But the devil is in the details. And if you start looking for the subtleties of the tongue, you can see that there's certain other pathologies going on. What happens with the tongue is that you'll see changes occur with different locations of the tongue reflecting different organ systems within the body. And correlate that with the history, with other exam findings, and they correlate nicely. You may have a treatment approach that you want to use to help address that, and you can monitor it as an objective outcome to see has the patient's condition changed. So the areas of the tongue, depending on which one are affected, what is observed there by the practitioner, and then how that tongue changes over treatment. That's, so again, one of many different diagnostic tools that's used in examination in Asian medicine. Are there any other organs that Asian medicine will pay more attention to than Western, for such as the tongue? Well, again, the, you have to look at the pulse that's used to palpate the radial pulse that's in the wrist. Mm-hmm. They'll look at the, what's referred to as the shen. The shen is, uh, po- poetically put, it's the light that shines from one's eyes when they're truly awake. Um, you ever walked in and saw a patient where they're just quite not there, lights are on but no one's home, or they're drug-induced, or they're daydreaming, or they're uh, not, they're sleep-deprived, uh, various stages of anesthesia, their eyes are not clear, or there may be something else going on. And by using the eyes, you can see what else may be going internally with the patient. Looking at the face, the shen, their affect, all that 
gives an indication. Um, the history, you go through your systems review, reviewing all the organ systems, what indicates uh, problems there. So all that leads to uh, hopefully a diagnosis that the practitioner will again apply the Chinese medicine approach of treatment and uh, monitor your outcomes. Okay, so, I mean, clearly this is something you've had to study for years and years. Where, where did you learn this? How did you first become interested in traditional Asian medicine? After I got my engineering degree from UCLA, I had an interest all the way through in healthcare. Uh, enrolled at chiropractic school. And uh, in the second term of chiropractic school, a, a wonderful acupuncturist came in and did a demonstration of Asian medicine and its power and potential to my classmates at a nice little small seminar. He took two classmates of mine out of the audience and did a demonstration of the potential of acupuncture on these patients, did a brief history, and applied acupressure, just using his fingers on key acupuncture points. One gentleman had just sprained his ankle on the athletic field exercising before he came in. It was swollen before he started, and after he had the treatment, he was able to move and walk a whole lot easier. The second had meniscal tear surgery about a week earlier, and he was on crutches, and it was in those days where arthroscopic surgery wasn't done, where the rehab is a lot quicker, so he was in pretty bad shape. After doing the brief acupressure session with him, stimulating key acupuncture points, got him up and moving around with less pain and more functional and said to myself, there's something here. So a group of us enrolled at one of the local acupuncture schools and uh, dual enrolled. Monday through Friday was chiropractic school and Saturday, Sunday was acupuncture school. And they designed a specific program for us uh, given that we'd already have many of the basic sciences already taken care of in the one program. And they uh, uh, designed one just we focused on the Asian medicine portion all the way through. And after I did my in two internships, went over to China, studied in Dalian at the medical school there. And uh, Dalian's in mainland China? It's mainland China. It's on the east coast near North Korea. And it's a little peninsula that sticks out. It's a big port city of about a small town of 5 million people, as they say. And we're in a thousand-bed hospital doing our rotations and learning under the uh, people there that were terrific with Asian medicine and different practitioners. The Chinese model of healthcare is one where they had the hospitals where everyone worked side by side. Didn't have freestanding clinics at that time. So you had the Asian medicine practitioner, you had the acupuncturist, you had the physical therapy, the internist, the cardiologist, the radiologist, laboratory, all accessible to the patients as they came into the clinic. So you had the best of both worlds available to the patient. Now, when you were at this hospital in China, do most people in China have some awareness of the herbs and herb cures and acupressure points they can use themselves rather than going to the doctor? Or do they say, you know, here's the Chinese version of chicken soup, and if that doesn't work, head to the hospital? Great question. I was quite surprised that the old adage, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, was very true in China as well. They looked at the United States use of antibiotics and surgery as the begin and end all of treatment. They wanted to embrace that to where we were in clinic and one of the nurses was handing out antibiotics to the people that were coming in as if they were candy. And we shared with the nurse as well as the medical doctor there the hazards and the resistant strains that can evolve from too many antibiotics given out. They wouldn't hear it. They thought that this was the way it's done in the United States and Europe, we're going to do it the same way here. Whereas we said, we're actually moving in the opposite direction, that we're moving into natural therapies because with these drug-resistant bacterial strains, that they're not dented by the antibiotics, that the natural forms of healing may be a better way to go. So I found that about a third to a half the people that came into the hospital had some sort of treatment previously with acupuncture, herbology, and so forth. It's part of the culture in the sense that herbs are quite more readily available and used. They use it in their foods as they treat for conditions, but they wanted to embrace the herb, the uh, acupuncture, not, I'm sorry, they wanted to embrace the surgery and the antibiotics more so than the traditional Chinese medicine. Their thought was, well, because it was developed here in China, there must not be any validity to it. It's always better when it's done by someone else in another foreign land. Interesting. So they share the same view of Chinese medicine that a few Western physicians do. Developed yes. in China, no use. Yes. And unfortunately, uh, that's a, a, a 
poor position to come from because studies have shown, quality studies have shown that there is definitely benefits to certain approaches outside of drugs and surgery that are very beneficial for specific conditions. So let's talk about those conditions for a little bit. My my own literature review showed that traditional Chinese medicine, specifically acupuncture, seems to have a lot more help in dealing with patients who have chronic pain and movement types of issues. Um, are there any other general conditions or things for which you feel traditional Asian medicine might deal with the patient better than Western medicine has served them? Remember the Asian medicine approach deals with the balance between the yin and the yang, the activity and the rest, the heat and cold, the damp and dry. Uh, what happens in the approach that is used is that the practitioner needs to decide which is the best way to go. It may be, you know what, you need to have antibiotics done here and I need to send you over to another practitioner. Or let's try the traditional Chinese medicine approach and see how you respond because that may be all you need. So the practitioner may use acupuncture, which goes into specific points of the body that are discreetly placed regardless of where you are in the human being. Everyone has acupuncture points on them. Frequently they correspond to what are called motor points of the muscles where the brain sends nerves down into the spine then over to the organs as well as the muscles and they insert into those muscles and when there's motor points stimulate that contracts the muscle or makes the organ work. So acupuncture tends to benefit more in the musculoskeletal area but does have an internal medicine type approach by various reflexes in the body you stimulate certain acupuncture points and that will in turn affect the internal organs. From an herbology standpoint, which is very similar to the antibiotics in the sense that you're taking the biochemistry out of the natural product and allowing it to be released in the body to treat whatever the condition it is. So you're using biochemistry there when you're doing herbology to uh, bridge it to someone who may not understand the approach. Uh, we're using herbology in the same way we're using biochemistry with a pharmaceutical end to treat a condition. So those two approaches complement each other. The acupuncture tends more towards the musculoskeletal, but it can affect internal organs. The herbology can affect the musculoskeletal, but it's used primarily for internal medicine. Okay. How long was your training for traditional Chinese medicine, and what does that entail? Are you doing a residency like we do in Western here? You know, do you have to spend more time clinically, more time academically? The programs are broken down into three parts. First are the basic sciences, where you have your uh, chemistry, physics, biochemistry, uh, so forth, and you jump into your anatomy, your physiology, your biochemistry. After that, you jump into your clinical sciences consisting of your uh, rotations that you'll do in orthopedics, neurology, internal medicine, dermatology, so forth. And then after that, now you jump into your internship where you go into the outpatient facilities and treat uh, patients that enter the clinics and uh, address whatever issues they have. So you're trying to put the basic sciences with the clinical sciences into the internship and treating patients. And after you see so many patients, do so many hours, uh, you take your state board exams and you're able to open your practice in whatever state you decide to go to. Okay. And is this match up with your your training in China? They had a similar model? China's model is very similar in that uh, they, after high school, are pretty much told what area they're going into as far as a career. Okay. And they would go into the Chinese medicine uh, programs and then from there, uh, they would do their rotations. And then um, uh, in, in, in China, their approach tends to be a little bit more rigorous than what we have currently here in the United States, where they did more hours of training both in the academic end as well as the clinical end. Uh, it's a, a challenge that we have here in the United States in that uh, the profession has been trying to push towards a elevated academic level and clinical level with some resistance from some of the owners of the colleges who train the Asian medicine practitioners. So there's no work hour restrictions in Chinese residency? Not that I know of. In fact, it, we work quite a few hours, and uh, it was a, definitely a different paradigm that they have there when they do the res rotations there. That's correct. Do you follow a particular school or style of practice in Chinese medicine? I came across the term Wei Bing a couple times, which sounds like five elements. Are there? What can you tell me about those? 
depending on what the patient presents with a condition and your history, your exam, there's a number of different approaches that you can use in Asian medicine. Uh, you have the five elements, which is one approach. You have Shang Hun Len Wen Bing is another approach, which is used more for internal heat and cold conditions for colds and flus, things of that nature. Uh, you have uh, your basic approach of the symptomatology of the patient based on the um, heat, cold, damp, dry. Uh, those are approaches. So depending on which way you want to go, in the same way that if you had a patient going to surgery, you may have four, five, six different approaches on a surgical intervention to achieve the same goal. Is this patient uh, over 80 years old? Are they 20 years old? Do they have diabetes? Do they not? Do they have any ad other adverse conditions that may say don't use approach A, B, and C, but you want to use D, E, or F? Same applies to Asian medicine. It's just not one school or approach, but it encompasses the same paradigm overall, but broken down differently depending on which uh, approach you want to use for that patient. So are there specialists in just heat cold, like we have orthopedics or dermatologists here? Is this something that I want to be a heat cold specialist? I want to be a damp dry specialist? There's a, there, that's a good question. Whether you want to be five elements or Shang and Lin Wen Bing or, uh, you know, uh, any other approach there. What comes down to is that the practitioner is usually exposed to all the different approaches and they have to decide in their own practice which way they want to go. Uh, there are no specific rotations afterwards uh, graduating from school and getting your license for residencies at this point here in the United States. They have them in China. They don't have them here in the U.S. just yet. The profession is evolving and growing in that direction. Um, but it's one where the practitioner can make their choice. The practitioners frequently will tend to specialize in certain areas, uh, whether it be women's health care, internal medicine, uh, physical medicine type issues. There's a range in which you can go. But pretty much the patients as they present will pretty much dictate the direction of the practice. Okay. So let's talk about the different factors in Chinese medicine, the ones that we're at least more familiar with by name in the West, starting with, of course, acupuncture. Um, I was lucky enough to do one rotation briefly in Beijing, so I got a big textbook, which is still sitting around in a tiny little model of a rubber man, and I still have a box of needles, which no one will let me near them with. Um, so what can you tell me about acupuncture? All I really remember is that there's 12 channels of acupuncture points, and these points have been discovered over the process of thousands of years. It looks like the very first gentleman who, who created it in China, at least from all records I could find, there were only about 12 points to begin with, and now there's 64, 100, who knows? Great question. Um, the... Evolution of, a, of uh, acupuncture specifically, no one really knows how the first discovery of it began. Was it someone doing soft tissue work and massaging somebody and realized that, oh, when I pushed really hard on this area of the muscle, the person can feel a sensation going down the arm or leg or whatever? Or did certain pathology disappear, like that headache went away when I pushed on a certain part of the shoulder or the head, the headache went away? What evolved over time was that specific points on the body that were similar from patient to patient were consistent and got the same response. And so if a patient presents with A, B, and C, and I push on points 1, 2, and 3, the condition improved. And it was all trial and error, all empirical, no imaging, no scans, no nerve conduction studies, MRIs, CAT scans. So it was done based on observation by the practitioner. There are 12 channels in the body that are described as the energy flows through these from one to the other. And if there's an interruption of the flow or if there's too much flow in one meridian, it will cause abnormalities. Let's bring that around to a physiological understanding of what that may mean, is that if you have uh, pathology occurring in the body, that it can reflex to the meridian itself where you can actually push on certain areas of the body that when the organ has pathology, it will be painful. I'll give you an example. Person has uh, shoulder pain, right shoulder pain. Okay, is that from the shoulder directly? Or could this be from gallbladder or liver pathology that reflexes off the spine and reflects to the shoulder, causing that pain? Well, if you acupuncture certain points on the shoulder or other meridians, it may influence the function of the liver and improve it. 
and the acupuncture winds up influencing the organ system itself. So we look at that as being a somatosomato reflex or visceral somato reflex. What we call referred nerve pain. Yep. Or or it may not even be a pain issue. Uh, it could be just um, uh, affecting the organ system based on re- reflexes. So you may not even have any pain involved, but you can affect the blood chemistry in the body based on stimulating certain acupuncture points. Now, a lot of the studies seem to show that acupuncture works. Nobody quite knows why, but a lot of the channels very often track along the same lines as nerve bundles. Right. Um, the, the challenge I have with my medical colleagues is that they're very, very well educated in the world of pharmacology and surgery and don't know much about outside of what they're doing. I applaud you for your show you do here because it goes into areas that most medical practitioners would benefit from realizing and become humble that um, other systems and other approaches exist out there. And Asian Medicine, actually, University of California, Irvine, about five, seven years ago, did a very nice study. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Where there is a research going on using a PET scan. And for those listening, a PET scan is one where the patient's put in, into a dark room, no lights on, ambient temperature, no sound. And the test is to evaluate the brain function to see if there's any pathology when the senses are stimulated. So lights will be turned on and see if the optic center of the brain lights up. Shut off the light. Turn on some sound. See if the hearing center lights up. Uh, All those things are done to evaluate uh, the patient's brain function. Well, the researcher at UC Irvine, uh, given an Asian background and knew about acupuncture, just for the sense of investigation, put a patient in the PET scan and stimulated a certain point on the uh, person's foot that was correlated with the optic center and vision. Stimulated the acupuncture point on the foot and sure enough the optic center of the brain lit up on the PET scan. Then went over and stimulated another point that was used for hearing classically and sure enough the hearing center of the brain lit up. So they thought well maybe if we put an acupuncture needle in anywhere in the body, it's going to affect the brain. Well, they tried off the meridians, and nothing happened in the brain. So what they discovered was it's a reflex, again, from the point to the brain, and they proceeded to apply for a NIH grant to look at, now from the brain, does that in turn affect the internal organs? Results of the study I've yet to uh, see, but I don't know if the study has been published yet, but it's one where it did definitely show that if you stimulate acupuncture points, it reflexes off the spine, from the spine to the brain, and the thought is that it goes to affect other areas of the body. Now, how, as somebody who has friends with deep-seated fears of needles, would you recommend acupuncture for someone who maybe wasn't sure about it? How long are these needles? How deep do they go in? Is there any bleeding after? What does an acupuncture treatment look like? We have so corrupted our population by taking blood samples out of the index finger of a little kid as a pediatric patient that kids develop such phobia of needles and how it hurts that you have to really deal with them on a psychological level 
to get the patient to want to accept the idea of putting a needle into a body to help stimulate healing in the body itself. So by telling the patient and showing them, here's a hypodermic needle, and here's what an acupuncture needle looks side by side, you can take three or four acupuncture needles and put them into a hypodermic. They're about as thin as the hair on your head. They're made out of 304 surgical-grade stainless steel. They are autoclaved and sterilized before they're used. They're a single-use needle. Use them once, throw them out afterwards. And they're put in so quickly that most patients don't even feel the needles being inserted. You want to get a dull ache sensation in the area to stimulate the nervous system and thus the various physiology in the body. And by doing so, uh, the patient will sometimes comment that, are the needles in yet? And I'll say, yes, we've got 10 in right now. Are you doing fine? They says, that's it. I said, yes, now just rest, and I'll come back in a little bit and take them out. As we're talking and I'm taking them out, we're chatting away, and I'll say, okay, we're all done. They says, have you removed them yet? Yes, I have. They didn't even feel them, but yet they had the acupuncture done. And after that, they become your biggest advocate for acupuncture does not hurt. But trying to convince someone who's had their blood drawn as a child on the area of their body that has the most nerve sensations in the uh, finger, it's hard to convince them. But once they have it done, they're, they're pretty much one over for life. I remember I came in one or two times and my brother looked like he was the uh, pinhead from Hellraiser uh, <laughs> with just a whole bunch of little miniature needles in the face. Are there acupuncture points that are more dangerous to place needles than others and how do you know where the danger points are and also how deep to insert the needle the insertion of the needle the selection of the needle that's a lot of the art of what you do in healthcare and I often say that we have all our laboratory tests our history skills our exam skills imaging all that is the science part of it but there's a lot of art of what any practitioner does in putting together a treatment plan for a patient. You have the science as a foundation, but you have the art of what we do. So the points themselves are selected based on the practitioner's choice, based on what's presented to them and their findings. The areas of the body, how deep they go in, depends on how much tissue is in the area. For example, the buttock and low back area supports the body to stand up erect, usually has quite a bit of muscle mass there. Compare that to the scalp, which doesn't have much muscle mass, but still has some muscle there. So your insertion in the head may be a few millimeters, if that, and the buttock low back area for a normal adult with no atrophy may be, oh, half inch, inch, two inches, three inches, depending on where you're going and uh, how much tissue you have to get through. Because you have always, uh, American people tend to have a little more fat on them than the other, other populations around the world. So you may have to select different length needles, depending. Tactfully phrased. Um, and if I recall correctly, the insertion technique itself is you almost just put your thumb and forefinger around the needle at the entry site, and you're more straightening your fingers than actually pushing the needle in. When you tension the skin, it actually reduces any pain or sensation because it goes through very quick. Uh, I remember having a uh, blood draw done at the hospital when you have to go through your annual physical exam when you do your rotations. And the phlebotomist there, who was very popular in the units, all the patients asked for this one phlebotomist to draw blood from them in the ICU. And he drew blood on me, but it didn't hurt. And I said, what was your technique that you did that without my feeling the insertion? He says, when you go through phlebotomy, they teach you to traction on the skin, pulling superior to inferior. However, he says, I traction both directions around the site because you tension the skin and it goes through quicker. Years later, I'm going through acupuncture school, and that's the same flying needle technique you're taught is using your fingers to traction both superior and inferior on it, tensions the skin, and it goes through very quick, and the patients don't feel it. I have to say, if nothing else, Asian medicine is so much better at naming things than Western. I love the idea of a flying needle technique. Very poetic, yes. Um, let's talk about a couple of the other ones that maybe people may not know. What is moxibustion? I know that evolved shortly after acupuncture going through the history of Chinese medical development. Moxibustion is one of the Asian medicine approaches to heating up a local area. You can 
transmit heat through uh, conduction, convection, and radiation. So where, we, where we're going with this is that, let's say you've got a cold area in the body and you can light a cigar stick sort of looking device. It is mugwort, which is the bark of a tree, and that's what actually burns. It burns at a constant low temperature. You can apply it as a cigar stick type uh, roll and hold it close to the acupuncture point that's cold and that heats up the area. In the same way when you go to a restaurant and they've got infrared lamps above, that's radiation going in, they can feel the heat as it goes through. The other is if you have an acupuncture point there in the area to get it in deeper, you can place it on the acupuncture needle and by using conduction, it'll transmit down the needle at deeper layers of the body. So you can use ultrasound, diathermy, a hot pack, infrared, or you can use moxibustion, which again is a cigar-looking type stick that burns at a constant low temperature. You can also place the moxa directly on the acupuncture point, light the end of it, and then when the patient feels the uh, flash sensation, remove it from the skin, and you're also stimulating the acupuncture point without using a needle, but you're using uh, heat to stimulate the acupuncture point in that case. So it's small, either small controlled burns, or as you said, using a heat lamp like over a roast exactly. to make the skin easier. Now, again, from a Western standpoint, heating up an area will bring more blood to it. There's some ties to inflammation. So we we may not necessarily understand why it works, but there is some physiological basis. Now, you commonly use moxibustion more by itself or in conjunction with acupuncture? That's an option for the practitioner. Uh, you can use it in conjunction with both. You can do acupuncture with the moxa. You can do moxa only. It's up to you as the practitioner which way you want to go. And it's always mugwort or are there other plants? The one I'm familiar with is mugwort. There may be others out there, but you do have... Uh, mugwort actually has a lot of smoke to it. Uh, there's a other approach that you can use, what's called smokeless moxa, which burns at a constant low temperature, which can heat the area just like mugwort with moxa, but this uh, has less smoke. So when you're in a closed office, that's what practitioners tend to use is the smokeless moxa as compared to the very, very smoky moxa uh, mugwort. China does not have quite the same view of smoking that the West has come to adopt. So I, I imagine smokeless is probably a lot more common in the U.S. It depends least. whether you can open the windows of your office building or not. Uh, a story I like love to share is that uh, I used uh, moxa in the office closed building, windows wouldn't open, but it was a closed ventilation system with the other suites in the building. And every time I used it, the fire department would show up and walk through the building. And it wasn't after about the third time I realized that they were showing up because other people in the other suites, as it was coming down into their areas, they were smelling smoke but wasn't sure where it was coming from. So I moved over to the smokeless moxa at that point when two and two came together and realized, oh, <laughs> it's not going out of the building, it's going into the other suites. Good April Fool's Day prank. I'm sure the fire department appreciated it. Yes. Um, let's talk about cupping. It tends to leave some very unique markings that, I guess if you're not familiar with it, um, certainly could be concerns for abuse in others. So what is cupping? What is it used for? And how would somebody who's not familiar with Chinese medicine know to look for that and maybe not not leap to a conclusion. Cupping is one of the approaches that's used where you use a glass jar usually. Originally it was bamboo. You could use bamboo uh, cup. But the glass jar is used where you place a flame inside the cup itself into the um, cavity, heat up the air into it, and then place it on areas of the body that you want to have a physiological effect of blood vessel dilation and heating up the actual area. Much again the same way that we talked about with hot pack infrared diathermy and ultrasound. Uh, so you're heating up the area doing this. With the cooling of the air in the cup, it'll suck up the area of the skin within the rim of the uh, glass jar. That blood vessel dilation uh, can create uh, some capillaries that will expand and even break, creating a bruising of that area. So after the treatment, cups are removed, the patient then may have uh, circular marks on them as though an octopus actually leached onto their back or area of the body that they had the cupping done. And uh, 
it, it can look like, if you're not familiar with it, as though someone was beat with something circular. But after uh, seven to ten days, it usually goes away and uh, it resolves quite nicely. And I remember on my trip through China, it looked like there was a lot of abuse because everybody was walking around with some sort of bruise. Um, what sort of conditions is cupping used for? From an Asian medicine standpoint, it's from anyone who has a cold condition in that area where you touch the body part and it may be cold to the touch that needs to be heated up. You can also use it for internal medicine, such as uh, someone who has a cold or flu. Uh, people will use it to help remove the, quote, pathogen that's there. Uh, and the physiological approach is that you're trying to increase blood flow, heat up the area, and that in turn affects the specific muscles in the area to increase blood flow and warm them up. And Twina will mention just briefly, that's... Is that similar to acupuncture but without needles? Is it massage? How is that different? There's a, a, several schools of Tui Na, which is uh, referred to as Asian uh, massage. Everything from a term called Amo to Tui Na runs a range of therapies. Everything from soft tissue, like effrelage, petrosage, tapotment, that's used in um, soft tissue techniques, to stretching, to uh, more dynamic adjustments and gapping of the joint. So it depends on the training of the practitioner, what they've done, but that was part of the training that was there in China, and some learn and use that in their practice. Okay. And finally, Chinese herbology. Can you take us through a trip in a Chinese pharmacy? What are some common things we'd expect to see? I I remember just having an interest. I walked in and I was expecting, I don't know, maybe a Walgreens, and the first thing in the door was a dried lizard. Um, so so the stores are a little different. What kind of things would you see in a pharmacy, and what's what's their equivalent of Robitussin or Advil? And One of the things that struck me first when I first entered uh, a herbal pharmacy, both uh, here in the United States as well as China, is the smell. You will smell the herbs in their natural form. Herbs will be everything from plants to minerals to animal parts. All those come together because each of those have certain uh, chemistry attached to them that make them up. So when you walk into an herbal pharmacy, you may see some of the turtle shells. Or you may see leaves or twigs or things of that nature. And over time, uh, by boiling these herbs... It releases the biochemistry within, and the person then drinks the tincture, the liquid that was boiled out. And that, in turn, again, is the biochemistry that's being released from these plants, animals, and minerals. So when you walk into a herbal pharmacy, you have the smell, you have the images of various animals that are around, the plants, the rocks, and so forth. And they're usually kept in containers, and then as you have your prescription filled. It's just like any pharmacy. They walk over, pull out what you need, put it into a container, and you walk out with it afterwards and boil it at home and drink the uh, liquid that has already released the chemistry. So it's everything is tea-based. There's no soups. There's no, you sprinkle this on your food. There's no enemas. There's a couple ways of, of applying herbs. One is that you could take the actual plant, animal, and mineral and uh, grind it up and do it as an oral capsule that you can consume and it goes in through your digestive tract. Again, you've got a 20-30% absorption rate there and uh, gets absorbed that way. Another is you can boil the herbs in a liquid form, uh, remove the herbs itself, drink the liquid. Again, through the oral cavity is another way of doing it. Some actually can do injections of some of the herbs into the body, into the uh, muscles. Another approach. Uh, but more often than not, it's either capsules that you can, uh, or tablets that you can consume, or it's uh, done through liquid through boiling the herbs after a certain period of time. It cools and you drink the uh, liquid. So of all the different things we've touched on very briefly today, if somebody wanted to learn more, what are resources you would recommend them to look into? One of the best books that's out there that I've seen over time is called The Web That Has No Weaver by Ted Kupchak. In the first several chapters, he'll walk you through on how the paradigm was developed, but how the paradigm parallels what we see in Western medicine. 
in that many times they arrive at the same answer but using different paths to get to that goal. And that was a nice bridge for me as I was trying to figure out how do I think of this as a Western thinker trained in drugs and surgery as a little child growing up watching all the doctor shows on TV and going to the doctor's office as a child into this paradigm which takes a different approach but tends to get the same results using different therapies and different avenues to get to it. So the journey is a little bit different, but the goal is the same, and they do parallel each other quite nicely. And the web that has no has no weaver is a great uh, starting point for most people. It's by Ted Kupchick. Can you give us an example? So since you're trained in both Western and Chinese medicine, um, how would you diagnose somebody from a Chinese medicine standpoint if they came in with, for example, just a general infection or uh, we mentioned gallbladder before. How would you recognize a gallstone? What would be the process there? In Western, we would do an ultrasound. Um, if there was a fever, we'd check a blood test, and then we'd go to surgery. What would that process look like from another standpoint? All practitioners start off with a chief complaint from the patient. They then evolve into the history where they go through and do your systems review and onset occurrence, what makes it better, worse, quality of the pain, frequency of it, and so forth. Then from there you do your exam where you palpate the abdomen, you'd auscultate, you'd percuss all the things that were taught in school. But the findings would be interpreted a little bit differently depending on which paradigm. The gallbladder may have radiating pain into the stomach, the abdomen may even imitate a heart attack type chest pain, uh, nausea, vomiting possibly uh, after eating oily fatty foods because the problem with emulsifying them could have uh, stools that are of different uh, texture than normal. So you might say, you know what, you, you have a gallstone here, but from a Chinese medicine standpoint, this would be liver overacting on stomach. And based on five elements, you would have, your approach would be to treat the liver to, de, uh, to uh, sedate it, reduce it, not make it so active, and perhaps tonify or increase the stomach strength and you would use certain acupuncture points, you would use some herbs. Then you would watch your outcome measures to see am I making progress or am I not. Because as you know with gallstones, they form normally in the gallbladder, but usually they're small enough where they pass through. So ones that are too big that don't pass through, that block the duct, causing gallbladder attacks and problems there. So you hit a point as a practitioner that, you know what, this gallstone is too big, it's not going to pass. Nothing I have to offer in Asian medicine we need to send you out for surgical consult and see if uh, surgery needs to be done, which more likely than not needs to be done. Uh, same diagnostic tests are used. You may send them out for ultrasound. Okay, we've got a gallstone here that's one centimeter. You know what, that's not going to pass through the bowel duct. Or, you know what, you've got a gall gallbladder issue and we're going to treat this and it improves. We're fine. Okay. So you've been in practice for a number of years, certainly since before I even made it into med school. What kind of treatments do you offer in your office from a traditional Chinese medicine standpoint? In my office, because I'm trained in several areas, everything from pain control, rehab, physical therapy, chiropractic, acupuncture, herbology. Um, from an Asian medicine perspective, I offer acupuncture, moxibustion, herbology, cupping. There's an overlap with other fields, such as behavior lifestyle changes, doing the right things, getting enough rest, exercise, diet changes. So those are the approaches I use from the Asian medicine perspective. There's much more to, the, to it than that, everything from Tai Chi, Qigong, which I don't offer here, but can send out to practitioners who do teach that. So there's, there's unfortunately no easy answer. It's still lifestyle changes. It just seems that traditional Chinese medicine goes a little bit more in depth than just less salt in the diet and more exercise. Not that those are things that you should just write off. Right. And it's, it's uh, definitely a, a challenge. It's one of the two things that are the most difficult, I find, in practice to change is the position people sleep in at night and their diet. So for a first visit, what sort of thing? Does somebody come in, they come through your door, and you know that they're going to likely need acupuncture and moxibustion? What does a new patient visit look like for you? patient walks in, completes the usual paperwork of full disclosures and 
so forth and become a patient. They're brought into an exam room where their history is performed, where you ask them questions about the chief complaint, their overall history, family history, uh, past medical history, uh, systems review, and then an exam is performed based on what that presents. And then from that exam, uh, you can inspection, palpation, percussion, instrumentation, range of motion, orthopedic, neurological tests. Depending on those, you may order lab or diagnostic imaging. And then from all those results, you design a treatment plan. And from that treatment plan, you see how the outcome measures improve, uh, objectively and subjectively, and then make some choices. So before we shift gears, let me stop again. Thank you so much for all the information you've provided on traditional Chinese medicine. If people want to contact you or find things out, where can they find you out in the world? What what sort of things are you doing? They, they can uh, find me on the website at uh, www.CaliforniaHealthInstitute.com. That's my website. Uh, they can reach me in uh, my practice in Woodland Hills or in Thousand Oaks, uh, 805-777-7474 or 818-999-4747. So if you would like to learn any more about traditional Chinese medicine, if you would like an evaluation, certainly worth a visit. You know, again, I can vouch not only for the medical knowledge, but just the excellent bedside manner since I have had the privilege of knowing Dr. McNamee for years. But... catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.